the 16th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, beginning right at the first verse. Hear the word of God. Then Jesus said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do? Now that my master is taking the position away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me in their homes. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? He answered, a hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to them, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 50. Then he asked another, and how much do you owe? And he replied, a hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and make it 80. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest mammon, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much, and whoever is dishonest in very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with a dishonest mammon, who will entrust you to the true riches? And if you have been not faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. This is the word of the Lord. Yes, you heard it right. And now that everyone follows along as we print the text in the bulletin, you notice that I changed the word to mammon. I changed the word wealth in the New Revised Standard Version to mammon. Dishonest mammon, verse 9. Dishonest mammon, verse 11. You cannot serve God in mammon, verse 13. It is the term used in the King James and several other modern versions of the Bible. It's pretty actually pretty much the Greek word, mammon. It's a word with its roots in Arabic. The word mammon only occurs four times in Scripture. Two of them are in the quote from Jesus that's in Matthew and here in Luke, you cannot serve God and mammon. And the other two are here in chapter 16. The oh-so-familiar term mammon is not all that common in the pages of Scripture. Just not a lot of mammon. A whole lot of wealth, other words for wealth, but not much mammon. But mammon sounds better than wealth. 
mammon is more fun to say. And it has a bit of a nasty ring to it, mammon. When it comes linked to this incredibly difficult parable about the teaching of Jesus, the parable of the unjust steward, mammon kind of has an onomatopoeia feel to it. The parable is kind of nasty, edgy, and the term has a nasty, edgy ring to it. A few years ago, in adult education, New Testament professor Dale Allison taught an adult education class on interpreting parables, the history of interpreting the parables. And with his words, he very creatively took us on a tour of the seminary library and the section that has all the books on the history of the interpretation of the parables. When it comes to this parable named by tradition as the parable of the unjust or dishonest steward, some would focus on the historical and cultural analysis of the business practices described in the parable. Knowing he was about to be fired, did the manager simply cut his own commission or eliminate the predatory elements that put cash in his own pocket? Or was the immediate discount coming out of the owner's profit? The shrewdness commended was an urgent decision that allowed the rich man to cut some losses and move on. Others would look to the existential crisis of the manager. What will I do now? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. The manager's employment predicament becomes symbolic of an Ebenezer Scrooge-like transformation that leads to kindness and mercy, or perhaps reflects his blatant political expediency of acting in ways to ingratiate himself to the debtors becomes some kind of exaggerated indicator of an awareness of others and the ripple effect of one's own behavior. Or his quick thinking to save his own hide becomes a metaphor for a spiritual creativity that ought to apply to things eternal. A street smart, edgy wisdom applied to figuring out what is necessary for the salvation of one's own soul. The shrewdness commended has to do with some kind of conversion process going on in the unjust steward that adjusts his focus, his energy, his business-like mind, his entrepreneurial spirit toward important things, eternal things. It's also possible to step back from the details of the parable, step away from trying to figure it out completely point by point and do a kind of a flyover, take a step back and observe the broad contrast between the children of this age and the children of light, the firing of the manager and the reference to being welcomed into eternal homes, it becomes a kind of end times apocalyptic teaching of Jesus. The children of light must be more alert, more on guard, more prepared than the children of this age. The shrewdness commended relates to being on God's side when the Son of Man comes with power and great glory, outsmarting the world with a wisdom that is from above and lasts forever. Yet one more approach is the effort to distinguish the parable itself from the commentary of Jesus. In this case, one could argue the parable concludes with verse eight, and his master commended the dishonest steward because he had acted shrewdly, because the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the children of light. Stop right there, and the listeners to the parable then and now are left shaking their heads. Really, Jesus? But Jesus continues teaching. 
The sermon goes on and the preaching heats up a bit. If then you have not been faithful with the dishonest mammon, who would entrust you with true riches? Snap, Jesus. In November of 2015, the Christian Century published a short article I wrote and titled it, When it comes to talking about money, pastors can never win. It started as an 1,800-word essay on the bind that pastors face because congregations and most of the folks in them are uncomfortable talking about money, especially the combination of money and faith. Over and over again, pastoral search committees, including my own, look for the next pastor to help them improve stewardship in the congregation. And then the pastor catches flack at the door, you talk about money too much. Or, you know, you really ought to stick to spiritual things. The piece included a few bits of wisdom that were shared with me early in my ministry and a few things I have learned over the years. One example is the pastor should always understand the church budget as well or better than the finance committee. Makes perfect sense. After the comments from the editor, I cut the article to 1,400 words. And when it was published, it was published in 750 words. And the title was, Why Pastors Should Know Who Pledges How Much. <laughs> Which was never the intended gist of my work. Most of the tips ended up on the cutting room floor. When it comes to reading, teaching, talking about mammon, the title editor, editor made it all the more a third rail issue. It was a print version of what social media now refers to as clickbait. And the editor knew what we all know. Don't talk about mammon, mine, yours, or ours. But then Jesus says you can't serve God and mammon. And when it comes to the first half of Luke chapter 16, it's all about the mammon. Ouch, Jesus. Not just mammon, but dishonest mammon. The two times Luke's Jesus pairs the words mammon and dishonest. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest mammon so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into eternal homes. Dishonest mammon, unrighteous mammon. One commentator suggests the best translation of the Greek would be the mammon of injustice. The adjective in the Greek is the same word used to describe the steward as dishonest, as unjust. The master commended the dishonest manager, the unrighteous steward, the manager of injustice, the mammon of injustice, the manager of injustice. Injustice, then, in the sentence, is a contrast to making friends. Make friends for yourselves by means of the mammon of injustice. Making friends must be more than a lighthearted fellowship, more than making an acquaintance. Making friends must be more than scoring political points, more than keeping score and counting favors. Making friends must be a reference to welcoming someone as a member of the very household of God. It must be what comes after finding the lost, after a tear-filled embrace, after a grasping shout of joy. Making friends. 
It must be what comes after the one about the lost sheep and the one about the lost coin and the one about the lost son. Making friends, as when Jesus announced in John's gospel, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. Making friends connotes relationship, care, partnership, equality. The shrewdness commended in the parable points to a participation and a transformation not simply in the heart and soul of the steward, but a transformation of the economy of injustice, a turn toward the household of God, taking part in transforming the world's practice into the very kingdom of God. The minister of injustice took the mammon of injustice to make friends for eternity so that when the mammon was gone and when the injustice is gone, the glorious welcome of eternity will last forever. It's a parable about ridding the world of economic injustice, one manager at a time. Economic injustice. It's what seems to be at the heart of the stories coming out of Mississippi the last few weeks. The poorest state in the country, as one writer puts it, far too many people in Mississippi aspire to just get to the poverty level. The water crisis in Jackson, like the previous one in Flint, has everything to do with systematic economic injustice. The poorest of communities made vulnerable by a system that diverts public funds and resources elsewhere. And then there's the story of the Hall of Fame quarterback who participated in a scheme with others to defraud the state welfare fund of millions of dollars. Along with others, the effort of a million dollars went into his own pocket for speeches and more than a million dollars to fund a new volleyball arena at the university where his daughter was on the team. As more than one sports journalist has pointed out, he made enough money in his career and with his ongoing ubiquitous endorsement deals, he could have funded the arena himself. The mammon of injustice. If you're not aware of the compelling and convicting work of the eviction lab at Princeton University, you should be. It can't be any easier to find evictionlab.org. The eviction lab is under the leadership of Professor Matt Desmond, who along with his family are worshiping part of our community here. The purpose of the lab is to gather massive amounts of data related to eviction and poverty and to make it available for policymakers, think tanks, and local and national legislative offices. And more than gathering the data, the work of the lab advocates against economic injustice. To quote Professor Desmond, eviction functions as a cause, not just a condition of poverty. You've heard me quote from Desmond's award-winning book, Evicted, before, but I can't study the parable of the unjust steward without thinking all that I learned when reading Evicted. This from the very end of the book. Establishing the basic right to housing in America would be realized in any number of ways, and probably should be. But work, what works best in New York might fail in Los Angeles. The solution to housing problems in booming Houston or Atlanta or Seattle is not what is most needed in the deserted metropolises of the Rust Belt or Florida's impoverished suburbs or small towns dotting the landscape. One city must build, another must destroy. If our cities and towns are rich in diversity with unique textures and styles, gifts and problems, so too must be our solutions. That sounds like a call for being shrewd enough to find solutions regarding economic injustice. 
if the managers of injustice could use the mammon of injustice to make friends with the 3.6 million individuals and families facing eviction every year. Mammon. It's one of the words in the Bible so rare that no one ever forgets. Even someone who's never read the Bible knows what mammon means. Would that the followers of Jesus would never forget that Jesus calls those followers to participate in transforming the world's practice into the very household of God. Use the word mammon when reading Luke 16 and the parable of the unjust steward. The whole section ought to be read with a crescendo above it and an increasing tempo below it. The whole section rushes toward mammon. The parable proper with all of its ambiguity and then the squirm-worthy sermon from Jesus, the post-game press conference as it were, it all has a rhetorical momentum that builds and the swirl of questions and complexity that whips with the increased pace of the teaching of Jesus stirs up head and heart, children of light, dishonest mammon, faithful in little, faithful in much, hating the one, loving the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. The mic drop of divine proportion. The listeners to the parable and the preaching of Jesus then and now can't feel good about it, can't explain it. You just experience it and try to somehow, by God's grace and mercy, try to somehow be faithful in your life in following Jesus when it comes to God. and mammon. Thanks be to God.